Mark chapter 3. All right, Mark chapter 3. We, we went down through uh, to verse number 6 last time, so we're going to pick up in verse 6 and just see how far down we can get. You know, hopefully, maybe we can get down into the uh, 12 uh, apostles being chosen there. Verse 6. Uh, again, And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians, against him how they might destroy him and and, and again that's the reaction to uh, the end of chapter 2 and here in the first five verses where he's out healing on the Sabbath and instantly we're in Mark 3 instantly in Mark we're right on top of the plot to kill the Lord and uh, they were they, they were upset with him for violating their religious tradition and uh, because he's going to do it over and over again, he's already done it twice within the matter of six or ten verses here, and uh, they're done with him. And again, first account in Mark here of uh, them wanting to kill him. Uh, this will match up to Matthew 12, Luke 6. So again, you think about it, Matthew 12, we're in Mark 3, Luke 6. So different perspectives Mark's looking at the Lord as, behold, my servant, where Matthew is, behold, the king. So we got a lot more governmental language. Luke is, behold, the man. So we've got more of the human side of the Lord and his humanity. But here, their reaction to his non-religious activity. Uh, his, he has completely rejected the vain religious system. And he's actually beginning to substitute it with himself. And uh, that's, in James 1, he calls it pure religion. Let's get back to what the Word says, and let's do that. And, and stay out of the tradition of the elders, stay away from this vain religious system. And their reaction is the killing. They're, they're going to, they took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. And really what that does is it, it leads us to John 1:11, and he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And that's literally what we're seeing here, okay? Now, you'll notice in verse 6, the fair, And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Now, the, in Israel's leadership, there are two... Actually, I should say there are three groups within the leadership realm of the nation of Israel. If you will look over with me to Acts 23. Acts 23. You'll see the Apostle Paul dealing with these guys and what, how he lays them out for us. Acts 23. And, and again, in Mark, even like Mark 12, 13, he says, And, then, and they said, uh, they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his word. They're after him. But now the Herodians are the enemy. <laughs> the Pharisees and the Herodians don't get along. The Herodians are, are a different group of people here. Uh, Acts 23, look if you will at verse 6. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. So there's the two groups, Sadducees and Pharisees. 
Sadducees are the liberals. Pharisees are the conservators, conservative. Okay, I mean, it's a fascinating how <laughs> you look at any body, you will have a liberal side and a conservative side. doesn't matter what it is. There will be some that are more liberal in their opinions and thoughts and beliefs, and there are others that. Now watch what he says here. He cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Uh, there's a, a, a saying that says, you know how you, you, you remember what the Sadducees believe. They believe in no resurrection, so they are sad, you see. And that's how you remember that. They have no, they don't believe in any of the spiritual issues or any of that. So you have these two, you have a religious division here. And you have a divide between the conservative side, that's the Pharisees. They're the fundamentalists, they're the Bible Believers, I mean, if you got say it like that, they're the ones that are going to hold the line. And the Sadducees kind of come in and just mingle it up. Now, the third group, Mark 3, is the Herodians. And the Herodians, you see the name Herod in that name. The Herodians are the political arm of the group. They have aligned themselves with the government. They use they they have they go to Herod and the Herod again the the Roman governor, and they look for the government's help. They use the government. They use the government for help and for protection. So you've got three. Now go back to Mark three. You've got three groups here. You've got the the conservative, the liberal, and then you've got the the political. Now, these three groups are what's over and runs the nation of Israel. And the Pharisees, they had to go to the Herodians, verse 6, because they don't have any political anything in Israel, while the Herodians do. They, they literally go to these guys to kind of run you know, up to the government so that they can kill him. They want to kill him. So they have to join in with the political arm. And ultimately, they will use the Roman government against him. And that's where this begins. Now, if you'll notice in uh, verse 6, But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from from Galilee followed him and from Judea and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, and a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. Now, it's interesting. Verse 7, the Lord does what? He withdraws himself. If you look at verse 12, and they straightly charged them that they should not make him known. So he's withdrawing himself from the crowd that wants to destroy him. He goes to a quiet place, 
and the multitudes following. And it's the multitude, it's, so the, the leaders have rejected him, but the people are what? We want him, because look at what he's doing. He's healing, he's doing these miracles, he's doing all this. We want, we want him, and the leaders are, we don't want him. Now, come over with me to Matthew chapter 12, the uh, parallel section here, Matthew 12. And just notice here how, this, how Matthew says this. Because what you have to do is notice what is happening here when he withdraws himself and then he charges them that they should not make him known. There's something going on here. Matthew 12, verse 14. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. So what did he do? He went out and he healed them, and charged them that they should not make him known. Come over to Matthew 16. This issue of withdrawing and and telling them don't make you know not make him known. Matthew 16, if you look at verse 15, uh, and he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he begins, and Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon the this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell everyone that he was Jesus the Christ. No, tell what? Tell no man. And so there's a movement here, chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 17. Seven, And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, tell, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. The event on the Mount Transfiguration there. So there's, a, there's an issue here. There's something happening here in the earthly ministry of Christ. By the way, several years ago, there was this uh, big deal going on out in Christendom about we follow Jesus. So we go out and we get everybody. And we did, well, if you're going to follow Jesus, what he, did he just tell his disciples? Don't tell anybody about me. And yet you got a group of people at the time, I don't hear much from them anymore, <laughs> about, and what are they doing? They're out. Well, we're going to follow Jesus. Yeah, but in Jesus' own words, he said what? Don't tell anybody about this. So sometimes you need to read the verses instead of listening to the propaganda, I guess. The, the point is, is there's something happening here in the earthly ministry of Christ that we need to pay attention to. We just can't ignore. Go back to Mark 3. And, it, and, and the issue here is this withdrawing. So what we have happening is there's a dispensational change here that's beginning to take place in the earthly 
ministry. And the fact is, is that Christ has pre presented himself at, to Israel as their Messiah, their Deliverer, their King, their Redeemer. But yet, what did the leaders do? They rejected him. So he withdraws himself from that public offering of the kingdom here to the nation. He, the leaders have with, with rejected him, so now he withdraws. And literally what's going to happen in Mark 3 and forward is that he's withdrawing himself from the public nation offering here, and now he's going to work with that little flock, that little group of believing, believers. And that's why down in verse 13, 14, and 15, and 16, he names the 12 apostles who are going to be the leaders of that of the little flock who ultimately will inherit the, the kingdom and so forth. And we'll see some of that here as we go. So when he withdraws himself, he doesn't withdraw out of fear. Sometimes people say, oh, he's, a, he's scared. No, he's God. <laughs> okay? But he's withdrawing himself because of the spiritual issues that are going on within the nation. And he's recognizing a change dispensationally within the program of a, of a movement. Hey, I came, I presented, they've rejected, now I'm going to pull back over here and I'm going to deal with and get ready, train, ordain, set into place the leadership, and I'm going to train them and get them going. So what's happening in Mark 3 is, is we're beginning to see that transition take place. And, and again, we're, we're seeing, you know, in Scripture, when we studied the Gospel of John, John contains only seven miracles, eight miracles if you count Calvary. But he only contains seven miracles of all that he did. <laughs> Because its design in John isn't to give every little detail. It's to give this is because he is this. Matthew does the same thing. Here's, he does, there's no wasted movement here. It's all designed. The Jews require a sign to believe. It's all designed to give them what they need, to know that he is the son of the living God. He's their Messiah, King, Blesser, Redeemer, Deliverer, and Avenger. He's everything. So here in Mark 3, that's what's going to happen. These miracles are designed again, Luke 8, 1, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom. He, here's the message, the miracle, the sign, the casting out the, the unclean spirit. Validate this, what he says. And the leadership has, has rejected it. So now he's going to move on. Notice verse 7, 3, 7. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea. The sea in Scripture, Revelation 17, it's a picture of the nations out there. Okay, So he goes out and he's looking out over the nations. It's kind of like that thing in Matthew 13 when he goes outside of the house does something, and then he comes back inside. <laughs> he goes outside, down by the seashore, comes back in. So he's going to go out, he's going to look over the nations, and, he's, and Israel, and, and how Israel is not ready to be who they are to be to the nations out there. So he begins to talk about Israel's failure, 
and the need for Israel to get going, get it on board. And that's what's going to happen here is that he's now going to begin to replace them. And we're talking about the leadership. Verse eight. By the way, in verse 7, in verse 8, you'll notice where the folks came from. They came from everywhere. They came from the whole territory. They didn't just, wasn't just Jordan, beyond Jordan and Judea. Idumea is down there south of the Dead Sea at the bottom. Tyre and Sidon are down there. They're from everywhere. They've come to him. And they've heard the great things that he has done. Look at verse 9. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many as had, as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. Obviously, they understood his capacity as Israel's Messiah, as Israel's Redeemer, Deliverer. He, I mean, think about it. He can get rid of the unclean spirits, the satanic captivity that Israel was under. He could get rid of that. And he could come over here and heal the, get rid of the diseases. They're consumed with a plague. So people came to hear him. And they are following him. And the people are ready, yet the leaders weren't. Verse 6, what are they doing? They're making leagues and they're making compacts and they're passing rules that now we can go killing. And in rather, instead of paying attention... They're sitting over here, and they're actually really uh, scared of him because of the great following now. So this is the moment. Go back with me to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, this is where this passage, and there's a passage in Luke 12 we'll go look at, comes to pass, kind of gets... Go gets not really fulfilled, but comes to comes to fruition. Matthew twenty one. Look at verse thirty three. Matthew twenty one thirty three. Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. Now, notice something. The householder, that's going to be God, which planted a vineyard. That's the nation of Israel. Isaiah 5 says the vineyard is Israel. But then it says that he put a hedge about it, hedged it round about. That... that People usually talk about that hedge being for protection. And it is only in the case with the angels and stuff. When he hedged it here, he, it's for separation. Remember the middle wall of partition, the issue of circumcision? That's what he's doing here. He, he put a thing in there where that was going to separate them away from everyone else. He built a 
he digged a wine press in it. Well, what do you do with the grapes? You go in there and you squish them down and you get the fruit out of it. Then he built a tower. Uh, a tower in, in, in Scripture is a religious center. It's a system of religion. Uh, in Psalms, he says, Israel's tower was the Lord. And so he gave them a religion. Then the husbandmen, that's the leaders. He put leaders over it, and he, and he put that. And then he says, I sent my servants. It's the time of the fruit. It's time for harvest. So he sent his servants. There's the 12 apostles, the, the disciples that are coming, the little flock that's coming. And what did the, the husbandmen, they go there to get it, but what are they looking for? Fruit. That's what, that's what the goal is. It's time for the fruit, and the servants are there to get it. But yet, what happened? Verse 35, And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But la So they killed the servants. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. And that's what's coming. Now watch verse 40. When the Lord thereof of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? What's he, when, the, when, the, when the owner comes, what's he going to do? Now watch these guys, because he's talking to the Pharisees. Watch these guys. They say unto him, verse 41, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their season. What's he going to do? Well, it makes sense. He's going to come down there and wipe those guys out and put new in charge. Jesus saith unto them, and here it is, did ye never read in the scriptures? And that's the problem with religion. They don't read the scriptures. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The quote out of Psalms 118 there, verse 43, Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof and if you write down Luke 12:32 that nation he said well we'll go, we'll go over there in just a second so a nation not the gentiles it's a singular event here but a nation that's going to do what bring forth the fruits thereof so the authority in Israel is going to be taken from the vain religious leaders the Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, and given to another group that's there, the, uh, uh, that's there within the nation, then that, nation, that group will then bring the fruit that God intended for Israel to be bringing forth all along. So the question then is, is well, who is that? We'll get there in just a minute. Let's just finish before we go to Luke 12. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken... But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. 
And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parable, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. These guys know that he's talking about them. They get it. They perceive. They understand that, hey, this could, is the deal. Now, come over to Luke 12 and verse 32. Luke 12, because here's that nation that's going to replace the apostate nation. Luke 12, uh, 31, But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all those things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So the nation that's going to come and replace the apostate nation is identified as the little flock. It's identified as the believing remnant. It's identified as that righteous nation. Again, that group of believers within Israel who God says, I'm going to take the authority of the kingdom from the apostate leaders and I'm going to give it to you, the righteous nation, the royal priesthood, those who have followed John the Baptist and who are now following the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you come back to Mark 3, that's what's going to happen here now in the text, verse 13, and he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him, but, and he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach. What does he do? He says, look, I'm going to take away, I'm taking the authority to run the kingdom, the husbandman, the government, away from this apostate nation, and I'm going to give it to, well, verse 9, and he spake to his disciples that a small ship, i.e. the little flock, I'm going to give it to the little flock. I'm going to give it to this believing remnant. He's separating out the little flock from that apostate nation so that they can go and carry his message, carry what he's teaching them. He tells them, don't go tell anybody, it's not time yet, and come over here and let's get the work, let's train you. Verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 14, and he ordained 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. He ordains 12, sets them out, and then he's, they're with him. So he's going to train them, he's going to teach them, he's going to get them rolling. Okay, And that's what we see happening here in the response to the Lord healing on the Sabbath day. The, the apostate nation, they want to kill him, the leadership does. So he withdraws himself, identifying the spiritual condition in Israel now. And he comes over here, and he's still healing the, mat, the multitude. He hasn't yet withdrawn from the people. He'll do that a little later, just before going to Calvary. But then he pulls back, and he's going to now call out 12. Well, we understand that, 12 tribes of Israel. And he's going to deal, ordain them, teach them, train them to now be his representatives in the, in, in the nation, within the earth. 
because he are not within the earth on the earth because he's going to go away and when he goes away he's going to train them we saw in John from John 13 14 all the way through 17 he's in that upper room the night before going to the cross and the only people in the room are the 12 apostles and and then Judas betrays him and leaves so there's the 11 and he's teaching them he's training them he's getting them ready to go okay so when he names them here uh, when he verse 13 and he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would and they came unto him and he ordained 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach he's literally getting together the government of his kingdom of his nation in the earth He's setting them in. Now, what happens here when he gets to talking to them is you get more detail in Matthew 10. So run over to Matthew 10. Because Matthew, again, is a governmental official. So we want to know what the king says. So we get more detail. Mark 3, Mark is going to, when we get into the guys and their list of their names, we're going to see Mark's concerned about the serving, the servant side of the equation. Matthew is interested in the government and the setting up of it. Okay, Now, what happens when you come into Matthew 10 is you literally have the Great Commission. Now, that term, the Great Commission, does not show up in church history till the 1800s when a group of missionaries from China and India came back to the United States and came back to Great Britain and they were trying to raise money so then they coined that term the Great Commission so it's not an ancient you know you, you, I, you, the, the ancient fathers and all those it's nowhere back there okay now the real quote-unquote Great Commission it's found here in Matthew 10 because verse 1, it's going to start where they're at. And in verse 23, it's going to take them all the way back to the second coming of everything they're going to be about. Now, what happens is in modern in Christian Christianity is they'll say the Great Commission's Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, Acts 1, and the end of John. But the thing about those is that those have those sub-commissions, if you will, after the cross, those commissions are given, but they have specific areas of interest that they're talking about. Matthew 28 is going to focus on their activity in the millennial kingdom. What are they going to do? They're going to go out to all the nations and preach. They're not going to go to the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel is not numbered among the nations. Mark 16 is going to focus on their activity during the tribulation, during the 70th week, being able to handle the deadly things and drink and do and be protected. Luke, the commission at the end of Luke 24 and the beginning of Acts 1, focus on their activity in the book of Acts itself, those, that first seven chapters. And then John comes in at the end and he tells them, Here's the authority that you're going to have to accomplish all of this that you're doing. So when you come to Matthew 10, here's, 
he's going to commission them from their beginning, Matthew 10, verse 1, and when he had called unto them his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the name of the 12 apostles are these. Notice that they start as 12 disciples. He ordains them, he gives them power, and they become power, again, to represent him in the earth. Now they are apostles. They're going to go out, out now, and they're going to act on his behalf. Then you see the names there in verse 2, 3, 4. Look at verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go to, but I'm sorry, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So off they go. But where are they going? They're not going to everybody. They're just going to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why? they got to get Israel squared away so then Israel and her program can turn and then go to the Gentiles. That's what Matthew 28 is talking about. Again, in the kingdom they're going to do that, but right here they got to get them. Look at what they do, verse 8. Well, they're going to do as... Uh, Verse 8, heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purse, nor script for your journey. Neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet stays, for the workman is worthy of his meat. As they're going to go, they're going to go into the cities there, verse 11 and 12. They'll be taken care of. But look at verse 20. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Now, when does, when does the Spirit come? Well, that's Acts 2. That's the day of Pentecost. Let's see, verse 23. But when they persecute you in this city, flee into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Jerusalem till the Son of Man be come. Now there's the second coming. So you've got this movement here, but it starts the moment that he get, ordains them. He gives them power. He sets them apart to represent him. Now come over to chapter 19, Matthew 19. So in Mark 3, where we're at, he just looked at the nation and said, the leaders, I should say, and said, you guys are refusing, I'm leaving. He comes over here, deals with the people, turns and says, okay, that leadership group is on its way out. That administration is done, and you're the new administration, and, and he sets them up. Look at Luke 19. Luke 19, verse 27. By the way, again, we understand 12, the number of Israel, 12 tribes, and so forth. Uh, so hopefully we don't need to run all those verses. Luke 19, verse 27. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? I, I heard a guy one time say that that was just selfish of Peter to ask that question. Doesn't he know? But it's not. It's right in line because the Lord has told them that unless you forsake all and follow me, you're not part of the my sir you can't be my disciple so what did they do 
they forsook it all. You think about Peter and Andrew and James and John, when they got up off those boats, they were commercial fishermen. They had a fleet because they leave dad there with the servants, with the other helpers, and then they just leave. So they walked away from a big operation to come and to do. But now watch verse 28. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, and that's going to be the kingdom, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes. What they get is this issue of ruling and ruling over, managing each of the tribes. And he set up his government right here. This is what he's doing. Now, the issue here of the 12 tribes, the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes, that is, will be, come back to Isaiah, fulfillment of what the prophets had told Israel that God said he would do one day. Um, Isaiah 32 and then Isaiah 1, but Isaiah 32. God had promised them that one day he would restore their leaders and he would put them in the land. And he would do that, and he's getting all of that prepared because the kingdom is coming. That's why in in Matthew 19 when it said, sitting on the throne of his glory... That's Matthew 25, 31 to 34 there, where he separates out the nations. What is, he's, that's the kingdom. Now look at Isaiah 32. Look at verse 1. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. He's going to bring the princes back over each tribe. That's why Peter in Acts 1, after the Lord is gone. He says, guys, we can't function with 11 of us. We've got to get number 12. So the, the Lord gave them Matthias, and off they go. Why? Because within a year, what were they anticipating? The 70th week of Daniel. They were anticipating the judgment and the return. Okay? By the way, come back to uh, Isaiah 1. In Numbers, the, when Moses counts out the people... He set up a prince over each tribe. So a chief ruler over each tribe. So and then so then one one head of the family, one head of the tribe, and then the work would go down through it. When Paul uses that term principality, chief ruler, head, and then it flows down. Isaiah 1, verse 25. And I will turn my hand upon thee, and purely purge away thy dross, and take away all thy ten. Now, that takes you back up, verse 16, 17, and 18 there, where he's telling Israel to come back. And when they do come back to him, he's going to, verse 25 them, he's going to clean them up. Verse 26, and I will restore thy judges. There's Numbers 1. As at the first, and thy counselors as at the beginning. Afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment, and her converts with righteousness. That's what he's going to do. He's talking about 
when he redeems the nation, sets up the government of the kingdom, and that's the reason why there's the 12 of them, the 12, judge, 12 thrones, 12 tribes, and the 12 apostles. So when we come back to Mark 3, as he withdraws himself from the apostate nation leaders, he's now beginning to establish his new leaders. He All along, he's been calling that little flock out, okay? But now, verse 13, when he goeth up into the mountain, he calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him. He's been spending his time gathering up believers. Again, it's a small group. And then from that group, he's going to choose the twelve. Now, notice verse 13. And calleth unto him whom he would. Uh, The call here. He does, this is not the Calvinistic idea of before the foundation of the world, God knew you were going to get saved. I mean, he knew you were going to get saved, but he didn't set it so that you, this would happen. What's he going to do here? He's going to choose. He's going to look at them, and he's going he's to ordain them. He's going to put them there. Uh, come over to John 15. I guess it would be better just to look at John 15. Because, and, and again, in Scripture, election and calling and all that never de- has anything to do with salvation, with justification. The guys listed, the 12 that are listed, other than Judas Iscariot, are already believers, justified. Okay, They heard the word of John the Baptist. They responded positively out of faith and did it. So when he's calling, and by the way, calling an election always has to do with service. This group of people come over for serving. Uh, Isaiah 45, I believe it is, when he says, Behold, mine elect. He's talking about the Lord. If election has to do with salvation, then that means the Lord was a sinner. So now we got an issue. But rather, he says, Behold, my elect. And then he said, Behold, thy servant. And they're in the same breath. So always remember choosing, election, calling. It's about service rather than um, salvation, justification. Look at John 15, verse 15, because here it is. Again, they're in the upper room. He's in the upper room with the apostles. The 11 are there. Judas has left. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit. I chose you, I ordained you for what? The issue of fruit. Again, Matthew 21, what was happening? No fruit was being produced. Now we're going to get new husbandmen in there to produce the fruit. He's, uh, the end of verse 16, And that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, ye may give, he may give it to you. These things I commanded you, that ye love one another. 
When he says, I chose you, what did he choose them to be? Servants, apostles, the leaders of the little flock of the nation. So again, it has to do with the issue of service. He chose them. He looked across that, that group of little flock, and he picks the guys. Um, by the way, if you come over to 1 Corinthians 1, <laughs> I was talking to a gentleman through email because he had listened to one of my old tapes and our old things on Facebook, and I'm like, you're going to have to remind me of what I said, and he did. <laughs> Look at 1 Corinthians one twenty one. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that were chosen. That what? Believe. You see, the sovereign free will of God is to save anyone that believes. What did he do to Noah? He saved him because he believed God. He's a just man. He's a preacher of righteousness. But because he believed the word of God, he took care of him. Now, that has nothing to do with the cross work or the shed blood or anything in Paul's gospel, but it has to do with he believed the word of God to him in the moment. What about Abraham? Abraham was a righteous man. What did Abraham believe? You're going to have a seed. You're going to have a son. And he believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So the sovereign free will of God the Father is 1 Corinthians 1.21, and that is to save all who trust his son, <laughs> trust the cross work. So when you come back to Mark 3.13, when he says, He goeth into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him, he's calling them for the service of apostleships, to be an apostle, leadership. That's what he's moving them to. Okay, Mark 3.14. And he ordained twelve. Again, he ordained them. He's going to set them apart here that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. He's gonna, he called them to himself with him. They're going to spend time with him. He's going to train them. Uh, if, uh, come over with me to uh, Acts uh, chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. He's, they're going to spend time with him. He's going to train them. And, and that's literally from Mark 3 on what he's going to do the rest of his ministry here. So he can send them forth as his represent, representatives to then preach, be, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at Acts 1 and look at verse 21. Again, Peter here, they've got to pick Matthias. But notice the rules, if you will, to, to being an apostle. Verse 21, Wherefore of these men, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Notice that. If you wanted to be one of the twelve, you had to be what? With us. You had to be there from the beginning. Verse 22, The beginning from the baptism of John, under the same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. That disqualifies Paul to being one of the, tw the 12th apostle. Because 
Paul, i.e. Saul of Tarsus, wasn't with them from the beginning, doesn't match anything up, and rather he's there. My own personal opinion, I, it's hard, you can't prove it from Scripture, is that, Jesus, that Paul, Saul of Tarsus was in the courtroom when they judged Jesus the night that he went to Calvary, that he was there. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's being trained, and he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel is there, so why wouldn't the protege be there? That's just my thinking, okay? That's just my opinion, so take it for what it is. But notice the criteria. Paul wasn't there. And by the way, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, disqualifies himself as being the last one seen out of due time. So when you come back to Mark 3, He's setting in the issue here of who the new leadership is going to be in that kingdom, in that nation, moving forward. Okay? Now, verse 15. He's going to, they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out devils. Again, they're going to have the signs that are going to validate what they are preaching. They're going to be able to go and to do. You see it in Acts. Peter and John meet that guy outside of the temple, the cripple. He says, money I don't have, but I got Jesus. So in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the rise and walk. And the guy gets up and, you know, Peter tells him to keep it quiet, and he doesn't. <laughs> so they get in trouble. But he can do what? He can do that. That validates who Peter and, and really the 12 are going to say that they are. And then ultimately, so will the rest of the little flock be able to do that as well. Verse 17. And Simon he surnamed Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boanger. Um, the, uh, the sons of thunder, sorry. Um, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into a house. Now, we got five minutes to the hour, so let's just kind of introduce these guys and we'll get into them a little next time. In the listing of the order of the names here, of the 12, there are 12 names. They are in three groups of four. Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, and Acts 1. Okay? In the grouping of the names, in the different passages, let me write them up here, okay? Matthew 10 and Luke 6, and then you have Mark 3 and Acts 1, if I did that right. Uh, let me see. Hang on. Just give me just a second. We just had a slip here. Yes, I did that right. In, uh, in the, four group, the four listings... Peter is always first. Judas is always last. Okay? So in the first group of 
the listing. Peter's first. Then you have James, John, and Andrew, or Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Then you have the second group, Philip is first. The third group, James, the son of uh, Alphaeus, is first. Okay? Now, the order of the names underneath, Philip and James kind of vary around. They jump around a little bit. And that's probably to do to some rank and what's going on and so forth. Authority. But in Peter and Andrew and James and John, notice here how Mark lists them. Mark says Peter and then who? James, John, and then who? Andrew. Okay? Now go over here with me to Matthew 10, where we have been earlier. Matthew 10. And this is just something that's interesting. Again, Peter's first. But then how do, who's next? Andrew, and then who? Then James, and then John. So the question is, is why the different order? That's the question, okay? So you work on it this week, and we'll get into it next week. Leave you hanging, right? There's a reason why. And if you know, go back to Mark 3. And you'll see the answer in the verse, actually. Okay? And we will pick up and look at these a little, uh, a little better next time. Look at Mark 3.16. And Simon, he what? These guys all have a, a surname. James and John, sons of thunder. Boangeries. Boangeries. I get it eventually. I don't know. Matthew, they're brothers. And they're brothers. Matthew, he don't care about surnaming anything. He cares about what? Gene the genealogy. Who's connected? Brothers, brothers. Luke's the same way. Man. By the way, the genealogy of the Lord is only found in two books, Matthew and Luke. It isn't in Mark, who cares about where the servant came from. And John says he's God, so he's always been. Okay, so we have a genealogy issue because we're trying to prove something. Proving he's a king, proving he's man. So we're going to talk about the brothers. But in Mark, what's Mark concerned with? The servant, there's a special reason for the surname that's going to come out into their, their activity that they're doing, that issue of service. What's a, what's a Peter name? Cephas. Why is he called Cephas? Well, he's the rock. And it's interesting, Paul calls Peter Cephas in Galatians, and Corinthians. You know, he, in 1 Corinthians there, the four sects, it's Cephas, Apollos, 
himself and Christ. It's interesting. So there's a special thing there about these surnames, okay? And I want to. We'll spend next time looking at them because it will take a little time. So when you go into these groups, there's something going on here. Um, about their, by the way, the sons of thunder. These guys speak the word of God. Son, the voice of God's like thunder. Boom! There he is. And then James, Herod kills James trying to do what? Silence the word. Peter, he's the rock. He's also the leader. He's the head. He's the boom. But so you've got that's what's, so there's a special reason for this of why it's in Mark and Acts and not in Matthew and in Luke. Okay? And it has to do, Mark 3 16, and Simon he surnamed, and then in verse 17, and he surnamed them Bonangeries. It has to do around that surname. Okay? So, when you look at these guys, and in, uh, by the way, it's Acts 1.13, Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew, but again, Philip is the head of the second group, and he will be for them. And then the other James is the head of the third group. And Judas is always Judas Iscariot, because there is another Judas. He's always last. But you'll have three groups of four names as they fall. Now, these guys here, I'm not going to write them up here, they will vary... Due to, due to rank and kind of different degrees of authority and positions and stuff they're doing, okay? All right, well, we'll pick up here and look at the surname issue next time. Again, I, I've literally got six, seven pages of stuff, so. Uh, and and be, just because it just takes the time to look at them, to catch, to see what Mark is after. But Mark is after that issue of service and activity, that's what he's after, okay? All right, just get a feel of what's happening. The Lord's pulling away from the, from the leadership, apostate leadership. The multitudes are still there. Now, he's going to get away from them down the road, but right now they're still there. They're following him. He feeds the 5,000, and they say, we want to make you king. He goes, you want to make me king because I fed you. That's not why you're making me king. <laughs> so he pulls back. So he's pulling back, then he reaches over, and he sets up the 12 apostles as the leadership of his, as the government of his kingdom, of his nation. And that's where we're at here, and we're just in Mark 3. And we're already moved in, time-wise, into the Lord's ministry. Okay? All right. Dearly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for your word and for all that you have in it, that we can study it, see it, rejoice in it, and know the end of all of it is for your honor and for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.